Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, we're in Galatians 2 here this morning as we are moving through uh, this sermon series on the Reformation. As, as we've been saying here um, this morning, um, that uh, this is Reformation Sunday, actually, and this is kind of a particularly special Reformation Sunday because this is the year where we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And something I've said, I think, already a couple times, and something that's kind of interesting to me personally is, is just the way cultures change over centuries because things are so different now than they were <laughs> in the 1500s uh, during the time of the Reformation because at that time, um, religion was such a central portion of everybody's thinking. Everybody thought in religious and spiritual terms. Everybody was, was aware of God and facing God one day and the presence of spirits and demons in the afterlife. A spiritual religious mindset infiltrated absolutely every aspect of daily life at that time. Now, of course, things are completely different today, right? I mean, it's 180 degrees different. Today, we live in a very secularized culture, at least in this part of the world. And religion has become very privatized. And people, at least broadly speaking in the culture, don't generally think in religious terms. They don't think in spiritual terms. So over the course of these 500 years, things have changed quite a bit. But here's one thing that hasn't changed. Over the course of all these centuries, there's still something that remains in people's hearts and minds and general mindset, and that is a sense of personal guilt. We all still carry with us guilt. An article in the New York Times earlier this year in March, the headline, was the strange persistence of guilt. And the article talks about how moral conflict seems to be stronger in our culture than than it ever has been. It it just seems like people are more morally outraged about things than, than they ever have been. But the problem is that people don't really have a category with which to make sense of their sense of moral outrage. And so this article says that while religion has been in retreat, guilt is powerfully present as ever before. Now the guilt that people experience might not be guilt in terms of like violation of what the Bible says, but guilt shows up in other ways. And so the article mentions this long list of things that people tend to feel guilty about. Like like poverty, not doing enough about poverty. Like homelessness, not being able to address the problem of homelessness. There's environmental issues. There's racial issues. There's all sorts of moral conflicts going on in the world. We see the starving child in Sudan, and we feel like we ought to do something about that. No matter what we do, we always have this underlying feeling that it's not enough. We haven't done enough. And and we have this, this, this guilt. Even in a culture that's not religiously based, guilt still persists. And that's what this article in the New York Times was um, articulating. Now that, that 
is very relevant for us as we're studying the Reformation because the Reformation ends up being this event that happened 500 years ago and yet is still remarkably relevant because that is exactly what the Reformation dealt with, the problem of guilt. That was one of the main issues that the Reformation was dealing with. How is it that we deal with the fact that intrinsically and instinctively we know that we're guilty before a holy God? And so John Calvin said it this way, the the only point in the dispute, referring to the Reformation and the dispute between Protestants and Catholics, really can all be boiled down to this one thing. How are we deemed righteous in the sight of God? Or in other words, you could say, how is it that we can know that our guilt has been removed? How can we know and have any assurance that this guilt can be removed? Another way to answer the question, to ask the question, is to say this, how is it that we can know that we're justified before a holy God? That, that's using the language of guilt. That, that's a question that all of you need to answer. That's the most, important, <coughs> the most important question anybody can deal with in his life or her life. How can I know that my guilt is removed and that I can be justified before God? Maybe you're not feeling guilty about some of the things that, that I, I mentioned earlier, but Maybe you're feeling guilty about just a lack of prayer time in your life. You're, you're feeling guilty about the way you've treated your children. You're feeling guilty about the way you've spoken to your spouse. You're feeling guilty about your use of pornography. You're feeling guilty about various sexual sins in, in your life. You're feeling guilty about things you've done in private that nobody else knows about, and you're carrying the shame with you. The Reformation dealt with that issue. And what the reformer said is that there's one solution to the guilt that we all deal with. And what they said is, the the phrase that they used was sola fide. That's the Catholic term for faith alone. The only hope that we have of being absolved of our guilt is through faith alone. That's what we're going to talk about here today. That's what our passage talks about here in Galatians 2. I'm going to read verses 15 through 20. This is a passage that the Reformers referred to very frequently in making their case uh, against the Catholic Church at the time. So let's read this. If you have that, please stand for the reading of God's Word, Galatians 2, 15 to 19. Paul says this, We ourselves are Jews by birth. And not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Transgressor. For through the, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Father, would you please give us 
understanding, wisdom, insight into your word that our spirits and soul would be refreshed in the good news of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So there's three statements that I'm going to make to you today about faith and the nature of faith. And they're kind of nuanced statements, but we need to hold all three of these together because I, I believe this is what the Bible teaches. And the first thing is this. Faith alone is the means by which you or anyone else can be justified. Faith alone is the only means by which a person can be justified. Now you see here in verse 16 that justification is clearly in view, right? We know that a person is not justified, Paul says, by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So also we believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Mentioned three times in the text. That's the central focus of this text, justification. Now, the reformers saw this doctrine of justification as absolutely foundational and central to all that they were doing. So here's um, John Calvin, all of these quotes referring to justification. Justification, the main hinge on which salvation turns. Thomas Cranmer, an English reformer, Justification, it's the strong rock and foundation of the Christian religion. Luther, justification, the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. So the reformers are saying justification is it. It all revolves around this particular doctrine. And it might be a doctrine that you might be hearing today for the very first time. But for the reformers... It was absolutely essential. So what is justification? Well, here's how we would define it. It is an act of God by which he declares sinners not guilty before God's law. Declares them free of their guilt and actually instead righteous before God. That's justification. It's a declaration of God whereby he declares a sinner not guilty and instead righteous before God. Now, that's what you, you ought to want in your life. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's interesting to you or compelling to you, but you ought to want that. Because the day is going to come when you're going to face a holy God, and that's going to be the number one thing on your mind on that day, is whether I'm justified or not. And that's what we're hearing about here in this text. That's what the Reformers were so concerned about. So, Um, As I've been doing in this series, let's go back and think about Luther and the way he dealt with this issue. Uh, Here's Luther. He's a German monk living in the 1500s. He's very theologically minded. He's very spiritually sensitive. And he's working through the issue of justification. And so for Luther, his thought about justification is that it's a process. For Luther, at least earlier in his life, he was thinking that justification happens when a person becomes increasingly holy in his or her daily living. And the person kind of grows in holy living and gets to a point where God can then say, okay, yes, finally, you're righteous enough, I can declare you just. Because in Luther's mind, he was like, I know I'm a sinner. I know what my heart is like. I know I'm evil and wicked. There's no way God could declare me just. There's no way God can justify me. I'm not nearly holy enough. But the struggle in Luther's mind is how do I get that holy? Well, I gotta work at it. 
And in the Catholic system at that time, the primary way this happened was like this. The, the Catholic view then, and, and to some degree today too, is that grace is communicated through nature. And by nature, I mean natural things in, in the world, like water and bread and wine. So in the Catholic view, water, bread, wine, those are the sacraments. Grace is communicated through the sacramental system. Now, the Catholic view has seven sacraments. We hold to two, but water, bread, wine should bring to mind baptism and the Lord's Supper. And those are absolutely essential. They're necessary for salvation in the Catholic system. So the Catholic view is that when a person takes the sacraments, receives baptism as a child, and then begins to uh, take the Mass, that what happens is grace is infused, an important word, grace is infused through the sacraments so that the person can, over time, become righteous enough to be declared justified. So you can think of infusion as kind of like putting gasoline in your car. Car's empty, it won't work. You put gas in it, you infuse gas into your car, and now the car runs properly and justifies itself as a fully functioning automobile. And that's the way the sacraments work. Grace is infused, poured into us, so that we can then perform the works necessary to be justified. So in this view, they would say, yeah, grace is absolutely necessary. And yeah, Jesus is absolutely necessary, and faith is absolutely necessary. But it's a grace that a person cooperates with so that the person then performs in such a way to be justified. Now, if we look in Galatians 2, I mean, we just see a contrast to that, don't we? What does Paul say? Verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. What he's saying there is, you know, we're, we're, we're the religious people here. We're the ones with the law as Jews. We're not like those Gentile sinners who are outside the religious community, don't have the law, those secular, unbelieving people. We're, we're, you know, if there's anybody that would have hope that we might be justified by the law, it would be us as Jews. But, or yet, verse 16, we know, even for Jews, that a person is not justified by works of the law. We're not justified by works of the law. Do you see that phrase? It's like Paul is so intent on making sure that we get that. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith, not by works of the law, he says. And then just in case you don't get it, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And he repeats it three times in one verse. He wants us to see that by no means are the works of the law a means to be justified. Now, what Paul has in mind here are works of the law in terms of the Old Testament, observance of the dietary laws, the food laws, observing the Sabbath, the ceremonial laws, being circumcised. But if we think of it in the context of the Reformation, it could be getting baptized, going to Mass, praying to the saints, fasting, whipping yourself like Luther did, praying out in the cold and making things hard on you. Any kind of effort and work of the law in the Catholic system was seen as something that could prepare a person to be justified. But what Paul is saying here is is no. Works don't do it. The, the, The works 
and faith are absolutely mutually exclusive in, in, in this situation. It's not faith plus works. It's like, you know, something is not free if you pay for it. I mean, as soon as you write a check for something, it's no longer free. You can't pay for something and have it be free at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. And that's what Paul's saying here in this passage. If it's, not by, if it's by faith, then it is not by works. Now, we still have this problem, though. If it's not by works, then how in the world does a person get that righteousness that is needed in order to be justified? Because that's got to come from somewhere. God can't just say, yeah, a wicked person is justified, a wicked person is okay, unless somehow that person can be declared righteous. And if it's not going to happen through works, then how's it going to happen? And what the scriptures teach in other places is that righteousness is imputed to the sinner. Not infused, but imputed. Righteousness is not infused, but imputed by faith alone. You see, in the Catholic view, grace comes, and then righteousness comes from the inside out. In the Reformer's view, it's a righteousness outside of us that's given to us, credited to us. It's a righteousness accomplished by somebody else, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that righteousness, there's only one way to get it, faith. Faith alone. That, that word alone, that's why I put it in caps there. It's so important. That's the whole dispute that one word is the big difference. The Catholic view would say, yeah, absolutely, justification by faith, sure, justification by grace, grace, yeah, fine. But they, they just don't wanna add that word alone. But this is what the reformers are saying, and this is what the New Testament says. Look, Romans four, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. His faith is regarded as righteous so that God can look at you as if you fulfilled the law. Philippians 3, we should be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. It's a righteousness, it's from God, it's outside of us, and it depends on faith. It comes to us through the instrument of faith. That's what Luther discovered in the New Testament. That's what changed his life what Luther came to see is that when he, these phrases in the New Testament, righteousness of God, glory of God, wisdom of God, he would always see those things as barriers. He would always see these things as like standards that he had to achieve. He had to do those things so then he could present them to God and say, see God, aren't I good enough? And then he came to realize, no, those are not standards to achieve. Those are things that God in Jesus Christ achieves and then gives to the sinner. They're not things we achieve, they're things we receive by faith. And it's called Luther's Tower Experience. When he was a monk, he was up in the tower, he's studying Romans and the whole New Testament. And, and he says this, he says, when he got this, he says, then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith, and here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. It's like that, that's where Luther just found the relief that he'd been looking for. It's not by works of the law. I don't have to whip myself anymore. It's through faith. This is where a lot of historians believe Luther was converted 
This is when he became a Christian. And, and this is the way it is for a lot of people. This is the experience a lot of people have. That they, they find themselves unable to please God through all their efforts, and then they realize that the gospel promises a righteousness through faith, and they are born again. It's like I've just entered paradise. I'm, I, I'm not enslaved to the law anymore. I'm free. All the righteousness I need has been accomplished for me in Jesus. That's what it is to become a Christian, friends. And some people think being a Christian is, well, I'm going to really start getting busy. I'm going to start really living a right life. I'm going to really start going to church. That's not necessarily becoming a Christian. Becoming a Christian is getting this, that it's not about your works, that the righteousness that you receive, that the righteousness that you need is received by faith alone. Faith alone. Okay? Now, secondly, again, these are slightly nuanced statements. Faith is not a work by which you can be justified. Because here here is the the potential problem. And Luther recognized this as well. He began to see, well, if it's just by faith alone, what happens if people start thinking that faith is now a different kind of work that needs to be performed? Now, you know, okay, maybe I'm not saved by works of the law, but I am saved by believing enough. I'm saved by my faith. Maybe you've had these questions before. I'm sure you've asked them. Do I have enough faith? Do I believe strongly enough in in God? And what happens when I start doubting? What do I do with my questions? What about the fact that I just don't buy everything that the preacher says every Sunday? What about these things I read in the Bible that seem confusing to me? I mean, I don't know. I've got my doubts. Does that mean I'm not saved because I'm not believing strongly enough? Well, that's exactly what what Luther um, realized could be a problem with this doctrine of of faith alone. But see, here's the problem. Here's the error in that way of thinking. It's it's what you're doing in that case is you're, you're putting your faith in your faith. Your your hope for salvation is in the strength of your belief. But what does it say here in the passage, verse 16? What's the object of faith in this passage? We know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Christ is the object of faith. Not your faith, not your commitment, not your confidence, not your passion, not your emotions, not your promises, not your good intentions. Christ is the object of your faith. And the strength of that object, Jesus, his righteousness, his death on the cross, and his resurrection is what gives you assurance of going to heaven, not how strongly you believe in it. Your faith is going to waver, friends. It's going to go up and down all the time. It's like you should think of faith as not like a tight grip that you're holding on, like like you've got Jesus and you're holding on to him and you're just hoping you can keep holding on to him. Think of faith as open hands that are just simply receiving what God desires to give to you. That's faith. It's a receiving grace. And your, you know, your hands don't have to be very strong to receive a gift. They can be old and worn out and feeble. 
But if you can open up your hands and take the gift, you can have the gift. And that's the faith that is being talked about in the scriptures. It's a receiving grace. So the reformers realized this. And nonetheless, they wanted to go on and define, like, what, what is really the nature of faith? It's not a work. It's not something we do to get God to save us. But there are certain components that are necessary for faith to be true saving faith. And so they had three things. One, knowledge. Faith does involve knowledge. You have to know something about the gospel. Now, this is important because in the medieval church, you know, teaching was just not a priority. People in the pew didn't really know much about the Bible, and the big reason why is because the services were in Latin and nobody could understand what was going on. The Bible was in Latin, as Brian mentioned earlier. The Bible wasn't even in their own language. And so, you know, when the priest would stand and hold up the host and say in Latin, hoc est corpus, which means this is my body, to people that sounded like hocus pocus. <laughs> and really that's where that phrase comes from. When we think of hocus pocus, we think of kind of nonsense or stuff that doesn't make any sense. Well, that phrase comes from that Latin phrase that the priest would say, nobody understood what it meant. So how are people saved? Well, the people were just told, the church knows what's best. Just, just believe that the church is saying the right thing. And I, I know you don't know what the church is saying. I, I know you have no idea because you can't understand anything, but just trust that they know what they're doing and just believe it. And what the reformer said is, no, you, 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 gotta, you gotta know something. You got to know you're a sinner. You got to know that Jesus has come to die for you. You got to know that you have to believe that. I mean, there's a minimum amount. We could talk a long time about what is the minimum amount required to know, but the reformer said knowledge is necessary. But not only knowledge, but belief. Because you can know certain things about the gospel. Yeah, Jesus lived, he came, he died, he rose from the dead. But the question is do you believe that? It's not just that's what Christians believe, that's what the Bible says. Do you believe that? You know, there are people in liberal universities who teach the Bible really well and teach the gospel really well, but they don't believe a moment of it. They don't believe an iota of it. They know it, but they don't believe it. Reformers said, you've got to believe this stuff is actually true. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. But then the last thing the reformers said is that there needs to be trust. There needs to be a heart commitment. There needs to be a willingness on your part to entrust yourself to this Jesus. You know, James says the demons believe and shudder. The demons have the knowledge of Jesus. The demons believe that Jesus exists. They even believe that he died on the cross and was risen from the dead. But the demons aren't saved because they hate the fact that Jesus is Lord. And they reject that. They won't submit to that in their pride. An absolute essential component of faith is not just knowledge, but it's like, yes, this Jesus, I want to be my savior. Yes, this is the Jesus that I want to govern my life. Yes, this is the Jesus in whom I am going to place my soul for all eternity. 
Has that occurred in your life? I mean, is it, would you agree with that? Is that true of you? Because although I'm saying here that faith is by, excuse me, the justification is by faith alone. It's not by works. And I'm telling you that faith is not a work. Nonetheless, the one who needs to exercise faith is you. You have to believe. You're not going to ride into heaven on the coattails of your spouse. You're not going to ride into heaven on the coattails of your mom and your dad who have believed. It's not like people in medieval time riding in on the coattails of the church just believing that whatever the church believed. The responsibility to believe, friends, is on you. Will you believe this gospel? Last thing is this. Faith that justifies is always accompanied by works. Here's the Catholic objection. Objection. I mean, the Catholic Church had a lot of objections, of course, to what the Protestants and the Reformers were teaching. And one of them was, you know, if you do this, you're going to split the church into a million denominations. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> and we have to grant them that. That, that is what, what happened. There's a number of ways to respond to that. But that was one of their concerns. Another concern, though, was if you say that justification is by faith alone, there's not going to be any incentive to want to do any good works. There's not going to be any interest in holy living. You're saying it's not, it's by faith alone, it's not by works, and faith itself isn't a work? Then why try to obey God? Well, look back to our text. I'm just going to skip ahead a few verses. But notice what Paul says here. It's after he lays out this doctrine of justification by faith alone in verses 16, verse 16. But then later, look what he says in verse 20. This is like a byproduct of being justified by faith. It's no longer I who live, he says, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, in my body, on the earth, I live now by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what Paul is saying is, I'm a different person now. Christ lives in me in me. There is an internal change that has taken place in Paul's life. Jesus by the Spirit has come to reside in him and now the life that he lives is an outflow of the life of Jesus in him. He is different. He does want to obey God and submit to the word and pursue holiness because that's Jesus' desire for him and Jesus is living in him and causing him to pursue this kind of goal. So here's what Calvin said. It is faith alone which justifies, and works don't contribute to that. And yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Does that sound like double talk? it's, It's not. Faith alone justifies. Our works don't contribute to that. But a faith which truly justifies, a genuine faith, is never alone. There's always going to be good works that accompany that. Because once a person believes and the Holy Spirit in Christ takes residence in that person's heart, a new life develops. So here's the way Luther illustrated this. He wrote a book called The Freedom of the Christian in 1520, um, three years after he nailed the 95 Theses on the church door in Germany. And he tells a story in this book. He tells a story of a king who marries a prostitute. And he says... This king wasn't attracted to this prostitute because the prostitute was a queen, because she wasn't. But when the king 
married the prostitute, her status changed and she became a queen. She was a prostitute at heart, a queen by status. And what Luther said is this is a picture of justification by faith alone. That as sinners come to believe in Jesus, we, we are still sinners at heart. We, we haven't gotten to the point where we've shaped ourselves and renovated ourselves to be worthy of justification. We're still sinners at heart, but we're righteous by status. We're righteous in the view of God. What Luther called this was a joyful exchange, just as that queen, or excuse me, that prostitute benefited from being married to the king. All the royal benefits of being a queen became hers the moment she became married to the king even though she still had to struggle with the continuing sinful patterns in her heart, well, it's the same thing with the Christian. Our sin, when we believe in Jesus, it goes to Jesus, it's laid upon him, and all of his righteousness then is transferred to us through faith. That's the gospel. That's the joyful exchange. And what Luther goes on to say is this, the security of knowing that is what causes that prostitute eventually to become queenly at heart. Her heart does get changed. But it's not a changed heart that earns her justification. It's because she's now married to the king. She's loved by the king. The king is devoted to her. Is not holding her prostitution against her. Loves her and has taken her into his household her heart has changed, and she grows to love that king and walk with him and obey him. And, and that's a picture of the gospel and a picture of this truth here, that the faith that justifies is always accompanied by a transforming grace and a new life. You know what's really interesting about this thing that Luther wrote, the freedom of the Christian, is there, there's a person that he devoted it to. And you might find this surprising, but the person he devoted it to was the pope. This person that he had all these disagreements with, this person that he was in dispute with through the whole Reformation, Luther devoted this to him because Luther's heart was that the Pope would be saved. That the Pope would come to know the joy of having all of his guilt removed. That the Pope would place faith in Jesus. I'm not saying the Pope wasn't a Christian, I, I don't know. But that's what Luther wanted. And, that, and, that's, and that's, that's what I for you. I want you to know that your guilt is removed. I want you to be free from your shame. And there's one way that can happen. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus. And stop hoping in your moral efforts, in your religion. Jesus is enough. His death is enough. His righteousness is enough to free you from your shame. And when you get that, you too can enter paradise as through open gates, just like Luther. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the sweetness and the greatness and the loveliness of your gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you don't require us to, to work to be justified. Thank you for giving it to us freely. We receive it, Lord Jesus, and help us now to live as faithful, obedient children of the King. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.